Well, we are into Holy Week now in the book of Matthew, and uh, we've had these themes throughout the book of Matthew. Um, those who, who see Jesus for who he is and believe, and those who do not. And as we come towards the end of the book of Matthew, the decision becomes very stark. And Matthew uses the conflict between the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Jesus to help bring that to the front. And Psalm 1 captures that conflict beautifully. There really is two paths in this life. We can choose to trust in Jesus, repent of our sins, and fall at his feet for his mercy and his grace and the righteousness that he gives to us. Or we can reject Jesus. And we see that contrast in our passage clearly this morning, which is uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 33 through 46. And most of you are already there because I was talking. Um, and that's page number 983 in the Pew Bibles. So hear the word of the Lord. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The chief priests and the elders said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we come to you and we see this wonderful blessing the tenants were given, and we see how they squandered it through unbelief. God, we know we stand in your blessings and your grace. The mere fact that we're here this morning singing your praises, hearing the gospel preached, we know, God, that, that you are blessing us. May we be moved to love you for sending your Son to die for your enemies. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Aesop has a fable about a, a couple uh, who were poor farmers. Uh, they, they cared for um, geese, 
And they sold the eggs of the geese in the marketplace. And they, they were by no means rich, but they were happy. They had a wonderful life together. And then uh, one day, this new goose shows up and uh, makes himself part of their farm. And pretty soon they notice that this goose lays golden eggs. One golden egg a day. So pretty soon, pretty soon, this once humble farming family is now incredibly wealthy, but they're not happy any longer. And then they grew impatient with the one egg a day, and the farmer said to his wife, well, our goose, he, he must be full of gold. Why don't, why don't we get all the gold now? And the wife said, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So they killed the goose. And they were surprised to find that inside that goose, he was just like, or she, just like every other goose. And they got no more eggs after that. This is actually a pretty violent lesson uh, about contentment and greed and impatience. And it forces us to ask the question, who do you love? Do you love the gift giver? Or do you love the gift? And it reminds us that if we love the gift more than the gift giver, in the end, we will have neither one. And of course, God is the ultimate gift giver. And every single one of us is guilty of loving ourselves and this world and everything in it more than Him. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to apply this principle to the chief priests and the elders. Um, but Jesus intends ultimately for us to be able to see ourselves in this story as well. But what stands out most about this story is that in spite of the fact that the chief priests and the elders and the leaders of Israel refused God's grace and mercy, he continued to extend it to them over and over and over again. Even though they would rather kill him for his eggs than embrace his mercy and grace. We have two points this morning for the sermon. The first one is why sinners deserve judgment. And then point number two is why sinners receive judgment and others find infinite mercy and grace. So why do sinners deserve judgment? Well, last week we saw the chief priests and the elders of Israel questioning the source of Jesus' authority. He had been uh, teaching with authority and performing miracles for three years now. But two days ago, he shows up in Jerusalem, riding in on a donkey, openly proclaiming himself to be the long-awaited king of Israel. Then he goes into the temple and he judges the religion being practiced there as if he has the right to judge that religion. And so the chief priests and the elders, they come up to him, you know, thinking of themselves as the highest religious authorities on earth, which makes sense given that according to Jewish religion, up until that point they were. And they want to know, why, Jesus? Well, what makes you think you have the right to do all these things? But Jesus seems pretty convinced that they already have all the evidence they need to believe that he's the Messiah and that his authority is from heaven. And so he tells this parable about two sons to help them see that they are sinners and that they should have repented and believed when John the Baptist was proclaiming his message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if they didn't believe John's message at first, they should have believed it 
when all of a sudden tax collectors and prostitutes are repenting and living transformed lives. That should have been evidence enough for them. And then Jesus goes on, which is where we pick up this morning. And he says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. In the Old Testament, Israel is compared to a vineyard more than once. Uh, You can read about it in Psalm 80, Ezekiel 17 and 19, and also Isaiah 5. But in Isaiah 5, verse 7, God says this very clearly. He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And so when Jesus shows up and he starts telling this parable describing a vineyard, the categories that the Jewish mind had would have automatically associated that vineyard with the people of Israel. So it's clear he's talking about the nation. And with that in mind, just look then at the care the master of the house gives to this vineyard. He puts up a fence. He builds a tower to protect it from threats. He, he builds a wine press right in the middle of the vineyard so they can maximize their production, right? Like, a, like an almond farmer with his own holer. He spares no expense to give his vineyard everything it needs to flourish and succeed. And so there's no reason whatsoever for this vineyard not to be producing tons and tons of fruit, just like God gave Israel everything they needed. He, he gave them promises. He established a covenant with them. He, he gave them the land of Israel. He gave them his law. He gave them prophets and priests and kings. They had everything they needed to flourish. And if Israel is the vineyard, and God himself then is the master of the house who owns the vineyard, the tenants, <coughs> the tenants in this parable are the leaders of Israel the chief priests and the elders, the people that Jesus is talking to this very moment. And so he goes on. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. A tenant farmer didn't lease the land for free, obviously. The vineyard owner had a legitimate expectation to receive a return on his investment, and it takes about four years for a vineyard like this to begin producing fruit, according to the people that I read. So when that time finally came, the master of the house sends his servants to collect his rent. It's his land, he built the vineyard, it's his fence, his tower, his wine press. An investment that he built at great expense to himself But instead of simply giving the master what is rightfully his, they kill his servants as if the vineyard was theirs. So if God's the master of the house, the tenants are the religious leaders in Israel, then the servants are the prophets of God sent to Israel over and over again to call the people back to covenant faithfulness with him. But notice something about the master of the house here. What does he do after the tenants beat and kill the servants? Does he 
Does he show up and give them what they deserve? I mean, he should. He definitely should, but, but that's not what he does. He, he sends more servants. And even after the tenants beat one, kill another, and stone another, he sends even more servants than the first time. He's pleading with them. The vineyard is a precious possession of his and his kindness. He's given it to these tenants to care for. And instead of realizing how great they have it, they want even more. They want it for themselves. So what does the master do? Does he, does he finally just get an army, show up, and force them to comply? No. He sends his own son. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. So this is mind-boggling to me. Even after everything he has suffered, he's still hopeful, He's still optimistic because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. One egg a day just wasn't enough. So the master of the house would have been perfectly within his rights to bring an army and evict these tenants, but instead he's patient, he's kind, he's full of love and mercy. He says, surely they will listen to my son, thinking when they see my son, they'll know he's come to represent me and that his words are my words, and that will be the thing, that will be enough for them to recognize that they need to turn and to do and to be who they already know that they are. But that's not what happens. When the son comes, they recognize him and decide to kill him on purpose, thinking the vineyard will be theirs. So if the vineyard is Israel, the master of the house is God, if the tenants are the religious leaders who are supposed to care for the vineyard, and the servants are the prophets sent to call them to covenant faithfulness, then the son is Jesus Christ himself. And for those in this moment who have ears to hear, they would have heard Jesus claiming to be the son of the living God. And he's accusing the chief priests and the elders of recognizing him and intentionally killing him out of greed and envy. Did you notice that? See, most of the time when we read the Gospels, one of the things that stands out, at least to me, is that somehow, inexplicably, the religious leaders in Israel don't recognize Jesus. And yet, here Jesus is telling a parable that suggests that they actually did recognize him. Well, I think the truth is the Gospels are pretty clear. If, if you read the story, they, they don't recognize Jesus. And so the question that, that I had in this moment was why? Why would Jesus portray it as if they did recognize him when we read the stories they clearly don't recognize him? I think the point here is that they should have. In fact, it was so obvious to them that Jesus is the Son of God 
that they should be right now in this moment, prostrate on the ground, face to the ground, hands in front of them, worshiping Jesus, pleading with him for mercy. That's how obvious it should have been to him, to them, that he is the Son of God. It should have been so clear to them that Jesus is the Son of God, that they are just as guilty for killing him as if they had recognized him and killed him on purpose. And actually, Paul gives us the perfect explanation for this in Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So if the religious leaders did not recognize Jesus, it's because they were purposely and intentionally suppressing the truth. They knew it was true. They knew who he was. And in their sinfulness, they suppressed it. Just like those who don't recognize Jesus now on the pages of Scripture, don't recognize the glory of God in creation. They have to sinfully suppress that truth because it's obvious to them. And the religious leaders here are even more responsible because they knew the Scriptures. The chief priests and the elders then are so blind because of their sin that they don't even realize Jesus is talking about them. Jesus says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And so with these words, the chief priests and the elders condemn themselves. Just like David condemns himself after the prophet Nathan exposed his sin with Bathsheba using a parable. But then, but then you wonder, they were pretty quick on the trigger there, right? They came in pretty strong saying, oh yeah, this is exactly what should happen to, that, to those evil tenants, which, which makes you wonder, who do you think they thought Jesus was talking about? The Herods? The Romans? So if Israel is God's vineyard, right, there's other options out there for, for sinful, wicked tenants, aren't there? But Jesus is not talking about Israel as a national political state. He's talking about them as the kingdom of God. And only the chief priests and the elders have been given authority in that sense. Now, we could easily stand here and point fingers at the chief priests and the elders and Talk about how hard-hearted they are and how willfully blind they were because they were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but don't we do the same thing? God has given us so much grace. He's given us everything we need to grow and flourish spiritually. 2 Peter 1.3 says that through the knowledge of Him, we have all things that we need for life and godliness. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Everything we need to produce fruit for His kingdom we have. Many of us have grown up in the church. Our, our whole lives have been blessing upon blessing. Growing up in a Christian home, we've received a good education. We've gotten great opportunities in life. But even if our life is difficult now, even if we became a Christian as an adult, all of us can look back and see how generous and gracious 
God was, and arranging everything in our life to bring us to faith in Him. And yet, it's so easy to begin to feel entitled to the life we've been given, or entitled to the life we wish we had, or that we feel like we deserve. We want our life for ourselves, our vacations, our hobbies, our family, and we forget so many times that we do belong, body and soul, and life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Our life is His to do with as he wills. So when God sends his word into our lives, if we don't like what it says about God's authority over my money, my sexuality, my thoughts, what I should watch, how I treat the poor and the refugee, what I should do with my time, how I should think about myself as a man or a woman in this world, If we don't like what God's word says about any of that, which happens all the time, we beat it, we kill it, we stone it, and we refuse to listen. But what does God do? He doesn't send an army to destroy us like we deserve. No, no, he sends even more servants. He's patient with us. He's kind with us. He sends us his word over and over again. He gives us more grace, grace upon grace. Then he reminds us that this is why Jesus had to die. And that even though it was the Jews and the Romans that hung Jesus on the cross, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. As the hymn says. And then the Apostle Paul asks us this in Romans chapter 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Most of the editors of our Bibles call this parable the parable of the wicked tenants or the parable of the tenants. But when I read this parable, what I see is the parable of the good and gracious landowner. A master who's so patient and so kind who's willing to sacrifice his own son to bring his enemies to repentance. And so we're supposed to hear this parable and recognize ourselves in the tenants and fear being as blind as the Pharisees and then fall down before God as the good and gracious king that he is. So that anyone at any time who's been given the grace to see how patient and kind God is with sinners like us, can simply turn from their sin to Him any moment, and He will receive us. This is the Christian life. Every day, every day looks like this for the Christian. Clinging to God's grace and His mercy and His promises, knowing that we serve a patient and kind King who would rather send His own Son to die for sinners. But sadly, the chief priests and elders, they cannot see the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God. So Jesus is now going to tell them what is going to happen to them and why, which is our second point, why sinners receive judgment and others find infinite grace and mercy. So Jesus uses the parable about the wicked tenants and the good and gracious landowner to help the chief priests and the elders and us see why we deserve his judgment He's blessed us with so many blessings in this life. Everything we have is a gift. And yet instead of responding to him with gratitude, we're prone, right, to want to keep the field that he has given us. 
We're prone to reject his word. We're prone to reject his son who came to earth and lived and died and rose again for sinners like us so that we could have peace with God in spite of our rebellion. As the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, apart from Christ, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. But because of what God has done for us by sending his only son to live a perfect life and die on the cross, no one ultimately received judgment just because we've sinned. Those who ultimately receive judgment do so because they reject Jesus. Because they reject God's solution for their sin. Here's what Jesus says to the chief priests and elders next. He goes on and he says, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. So first of all, notice again, he says, Have you never read the scriptures? Which is which is hilarious because these are the chief priests. These are the ones who, who knew the scriptures more intimately than anyone at the time. And then he quotes Psalm 118 for them. And Psalm 118 is a psalm. Uh, we, I preached on it back uh, on Good, or, uh, not Good Friday, Palm Sunday, if you want to go back and listen. But it's this beautiful psalm that pictures a king returning to Jerusalem after victory in battle. And one of the things that the Israelites recognized about themselves, that in light of the nations, they were, they were weak. They had nothing to offer. They, 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 they were the one, they were the cornerstone for everyone at the time. You had to know the God of Israel to be saved. And yet they looked weak and rejected. Their, their kings were weak, and yet God gives the king the victory. And so the king is coming back, and the, and the, and the Israelites celebrate the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so they recognize this principle that God uses the weak and the rejected things of the world to shame the wise. And they rejoiced in it. They thought it was so marvelous. And yet when Jesus, the true king, comes as a humble servant riding on a donkey, as someone who is outwardly worthy of being ignored and rejected, that should have been the thing that clued them in. Oh, this is how God works. This is how he always has worked. Of course he would send us somebody who looks so weak. Because he is the true Israel and the ultimate king of Israel. But they rejected him. And Psalm 118 then ends up being a prophecy that they would reject him. When you build a building, you need a cornerstone that is square and true. Because if you build a building on a cornerstone that is not square and true, the building is not going to be square and true. Just like if you set out in a boat to Japan and you're one degree off in your course, it might not seem like a big deal at first, but, but pretty soon you're going to be far, far away from Japan. And Jesus is the perfect cornerstone to build our lives upon. Jesus is saying, choose wisely. Don't reject the only one that leads to life. And he's pointing out that the chief priests and the elders deserve judgment because of their rebellion, because they wanted God's vineyard for themselves, because they would rather kill God's prophet than listen to his word, and because they're going to kill God's son. But they will ultimately receive God's judgment 
Not because of that rebellion, but because of rejecting Jesus. Even after all that rejection, in this moment, they could have fallen down before him and said, oh, I see, I'm going to heed your warning. Even killing the Son of God is something that could be forgiven. But because they reject Jesus as the cornerstone of their life, they will receive God's judgment. Sinners deserve judgment because of our sin, but sinners ultimately receive judgment because they reject Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The one who came and died in the place of whoever believes, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But since they're rejecting Jesus now, he's going to give them a very specific judgment aimed directly at the religious leaders. He says now in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So he's going to take the kingdom from them. They had such a privileged position. As we said last week, they had real authority from God. He put them in authority over his vineyard and his people, his kingdom, but they failed. And not only did they fail, but since they were the leaders in Israel, the people of Israel weren't producing any fruit. Later, Jesus is going to say this to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So even if they did convert somebody, they converted them to a different religion than the one God gave them, a religion that cannot save anybody. So Jesus is taking the kingdom away from these leaders. And since they refuse to recognize his authority, he's going to take away any authority they have. And he's going to give it to the apostles and the pastors and the teachers of the church. And they're going to go out with the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're going to produce so much fruit that the church will fill the whole world. Isn't that amazing? And so this is true not just for our own personal lives. This is true for churches. This is true for nations, right? If we don't continue to live daily in repentance and faith, connected to Christ, trusting in Him, hoping in Him, clinging to Him, striving to please Him in His power and His strength, if we drift... And everyone in the world will have the opportunity to build their life on Christ as the cornerstone or to stumble over him and be crushed by him. Jesus goes on in verse 44, And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So that's it. Jesus is the key. We either build our life on him as the cornerstone, as the God who is good and gracious and patient and kind, who's been so patient with us every day of our life, or we stumble over him. And if we stumble over him and reject him, we fall down or we break into pieces or he will simply crush us. But no matter what, everyone must deal with Jesus. Eventually every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, either out of joy and love for him or because he will force that out of them. By now, the chief priests and elders, they figure out that he's been talking about them the whole time. And so now we read, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, 
They received that he was speaking, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. What's so fascinating to me is at this point even they still have a chance to repent and believe. They could have heard this threat of judgment, and instead of hardening their hearts, they, they could have opened their eyes. And what's interesting about the gospel is it's the thing, right? It either hardens hearts or it awakens. It awakens us to the beauty and the glory of Jesus and his mercy and his grace. And there's no in-between. So can I go on committing my same pet sin, just hoping he'll forgive me? Or must I repent? And the answer is we must repent. And for most of us, we will be repenting of it every single day. Think about my own life and the things I struggled with even as a kid. Right? And, and as you grow older, the only thing that changes is there's just new opportunities, new situations, and new contexts to struggle. And if I did not have Christ, if I wasn't clinging to Him and holding on to Him, my life would be a shipwreck. It just would. So when we see His love and His patience and His kindness, how long He's endured us, preferring the field He's given us to knowing Him and walking with Him and the obedience of faith, and how firm our grip is on the things of this world, how unwilling we are to truly take up our cross and follow Him, when we see how long He's endured that from us, and all the time He keeps sending His Word, reminding us of His love for us in Christ, that's the thing that melts our hearts, Christian. That's what moves us to love Him and build our life on Him. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need you. We need your spirit. We need your son. We need this perspective. We need the picture of your, your infinite mercy and kindness that moves us to repentance. And we need the warning of how important it is to take hold of that through faith. Help us, God, to, to, to not see these things as burdens, but as grace, as, as weighty truths that heal us and bring us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.